Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Now, we are in week two, and the final week of our series, Staying Focused. Last week, we looked at the book of Jonah, more around chapters one and two, and we saw God's heart for his creation, our role in redemption and bringing hope to this world. In fact, midweek, it was kind of fun. Pastor Matt and I joined with a great group of you. There are so many that joined with us. Uh, and we had a conversation, a deep dive into the book of Jonah. And we read all four chapters. We talked about the history and the context. It was such a meaningful conversation we had with you guys. Thank you for participating in that. This week, we're going to look at chapters three and four of Jonah. And we're going to be honing in on two aspects of God's nature that really, I think, is going to inspire you. I hope it inspires you to live this out in your life. Justice and mercy. Those are the two aspects. Are you ready to go? Ah, let's go. Last week, we left Jonah right on the shore. Remember, after three days, three nights in a, in a whale, he's kind of spewed up on store, uh, shore. He needs a good shower. And he begins a three-day journey to Nineveh. He's going to this great city. And, you know, last week I showed you uh, the world's worst complaint. Remember, in chapter 4 of Jonah, Jonah complains about something everybody should be celebrating. Well, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to show you now actually the world's worst sermon as Pastor Matt kind of coined it in our midweek th- phrase, and you'll understand why. Jonah kind of journeys three days, gets to Nineveh, walks into the city, and this is his sermon. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's it. I mean... <laughs> Jonah, the reluctant prophet, is meeting the bare minimum requirements of a sermon. I mean, it's a message, but there's no introduction, there's no conclusion, there's no application. It's a declaration of doom and judgment. Why? Well, because the Assyrian nation and the Ninevites, they're guilty of great injustices. In fact, I often think of it this way. If there was a hall of fame for injustices and there was a checklist in order to get into that hall of fame, the Assyrians checked all the lists. The Ninevites did. Exploit the poor, they did this. Not just in foreign lands, they did it right in their own city. In fact, if you were poor or sick or weak in any way, uh, they were not giving you a leg up. You were just someone they stood on. So exploiting the poor, yep, that was there. Uh, Oppressed other races and cultures? Yeah. When they would conquer other races and cultures, they would often erase, they tried to cancel their history and their culture and assimilate them into the Assyrian culture. And there was a way of even culturally appropriating pieces. Uh, They walked all over foreign cultures in that time. Dominate with violence? 
Well, they were the greatest military machine in the then-known world. Uh, you know, not only were they the cruelest and most violent uh, empire of that era, but they were the most advanced militarily. In fact, they kind of employed new strategies and tactics that their enemies couldn't match, and a kind of blitzkrieg approach to warfare. They were the first ones that put archers on the back of chariots that they could charge in quickly, move back, and let the army come in. Uh, they were unrelenting, and they used their military power to further their interests in that, uh, in that part of the world. And then finally, psychologically terrorize the weak. Check. You know, cruel and violent mark them. In fact, historians uh, have reflected on the, just how cruel and violent this empire was. They call them the original terrorist state. Uh, it, see, it wasn't enough to conquer a nation. They wanted to so de demoralize them, so, so strategically and psychologically terrorized them that any would-be competitors in the region, none of them would stand against the Assyrians lest this happen to them. In fact, their em emperor at the time, Shalamanazar III, I'm struggling with his name there, Shalamanazar III, this is a, from his Instagram account actually, nice image of him, unfiltered. Uh, actually, he chronicles all of their conquests and with great detail records their atrocities, bragging about the decapitations, bragging about the dismemberment of human beings, and bragging about the torture. One of the practices of the Syrian army was this. When they conquered another army, they would cut off the legs of the surrendered soldiers as well as one of their arms, leaving only one arm to mockingly shake the hand of their victim. I mean, it's horrific, and in fact, you know, uh, it's hard to believe, but that's one of the less graphic stories I can share with you to get a sense of the injustices and some of the evil of which they have participated in. The Ninevites are famous for their injustice, for their imperial ways, their colonialism, and certainly their oppression of not just people out there, but even locally in there. See, you look at that checklist, and I think if there's a Hall of Fame for injustice, they're first ballot Hall of Famers. That's what they are. First ballot Hall of Fame in unjust culture, society at that time, it was the Assyrian Empire. So no, no, or Jonah goes there, three-day journey, walks into the city, and he shouts his sermon as he walks across the city. 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed, period. That's it. And, and uh, But what happens is the Ninevites listen to him. See, they must have known it was true. In fact, the king of Nineveh, it's recorded in chapter 3, he hears the sermon and he responds. There's an interesting response. There's sackcloth. There's a lot of uh, postures of repentance. But the king declares this. They, meaning his own people, they must turn from their evil ways and stop all of their violence. And it's not just saying, hey, stop beating each other. The word violence here, the Hebrew word in the context is much broader and deeper, actually. Dr. Leslie Allen, uh, Old Testament theologian, he says it this way. Violence is the arbitrary infringement of human rights. Of social injustice, Nineveh was blatantly guilty. The king is saying, we've, we've got to stop walking all over human rights. See, it was chronicled, it was well accounted about their injustices and their walking over human rights in foreign lands. 
But something unique is happening here. It's not just in foreign lands, it's right in their own city. Here's a concept that's really hard for Western Christians to even understand. Not, you know, we come from all over the world in this church. There's over 70 nationalities. So some of you will get this more than others, but it's a biblical thing we need to understand here. It's the understanding of the connection between corporate or community and individual. See, what was happening in Nineveh was corporately, the, the, the whole city was guilty of their corporate oppression, their corporate injustice. And what they were doing corporately was flowing down individually right in their local setting. They were acting unjustly. And in turn, what you do individually forms the community. There's a connection between what is corporate or a community or a people and what is happening individually. And in westernized cultures, we struggle with this because I want to be responsible for my actions. I'm responsible and accountable for my actions. And that's a biblical theme too. I mean, the only way we can receive forgiveness from God is when we own it, when we, we recognize God, I'm accountable and I'm responsible. I did it. And then we can receive forgiveness. The only way we can receive healing or restoration is when we own our junk, our part in the argument, our part in the conflict. When we own our part, we can actually heal it and we can actually move forward in life. So personal accountability and responsibility is a biblical thing. But so is corporate responsibility. But this is what bothers us. That somehow I would be responsible for the actions of somebody else? That somehow I would be accountable for somebody else's decisions? Well, scripture's littered with examples. In fact, in Joshua chapter 7 is a story that bugs me. It's a story of a man named Achan. Here's the context. The children of God, children of Israel, have left slavery in Egypt and they're going into the promised land. And in the promised land are a lot of strongholds and, and enemies of theirs. And one was a famous city called Jericho, and you've probably heard this story. Well, God says, listen, I'm going to give you Jericho. I'm going to help you deliver a great victory for you. But what I, I don't want you to leave all the spoils of the battle. I don't want you to enrich yourself off this victory. I want you to leave it all there, walk away. Well, a man named Achan is going through the rubble after the great victory that God gives him, and he sees silver and gold. And he thinks, you know, why would you leave that there? I mean, somebody's going to get it. That as well be me. So he takes it, and he hides it under the tent, the corner of his tent. And what happens in the following days is Israel begins to lose battles. And Joshua goes to God and says, have you left us? What's going on? And in verse 11 of Joshua chapter 7, God responds. God says to Joshua, Israel has sinned. Wait, Israel? I thought it was Achan. A Achan sins, God. Maybe, maybe God missed the story, right? Israel has sinned and broken my covenant. They, no, 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 no. You mean he, God. He's responsible. No, they have stolen some of the things that I commanded must be set apart for me. The idea behind leaving the spoils of the battle was to leave a sacrifice. It's, it was kind of like, we don't need the, 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 these spoils to enrich us or care for us because God is our provider. It's an act of trust there. Uh, must be set apart. And they, again, corporate, have not only stolen them, but have lied about it and have hidden the things among their own possessions. So 
It's talking, and this is really hard for us to understand. Why should I apologize? I mean, why should I make it right? Why should I make reparations? Why should I make restitution? Why should I repent for somebody else's actions? One man messed up. One man acts out, but the whole community pays for it. Now, that doesn't seem fair to us, does it? Here's a, here's a truth that you'll see again in Scripture. This is a principle, a principle you see in Scripture. When one person acts irresponsible, they reap what they sow. And if this is a new concept to you, this is simply this, that all of us reap what we sow. And so the idea is simply this. We could, we could do some terrible things in this life. And because it's a kind of, I love it, it's an agricultural type of imagery of reaping and sowing, it doesn't mean immediately you're going to feel the effects of what you've done. But what God is reminding you is those are little seeds that are getting planted, and it's going to bear some bad fruit in your life eventually. And the inverse of that is true. If you do good things, you don't always see the results right away. And sometimes we do good, and we were like, how come, how come nothing good came out of this? Well, because it's still in a season, you haven't harvested it yet. But here's the other truth we see here, that the community, sorry, going back one slide, that the community also reaps what they've sown. That here is an illustration. Achan sins, but the community is reaping the the, the, the judgment. And there's part of us that goes, this is unfair. But I think we know it's true, don't we? I mean, if one spouse acts irresponsible, it not only affects them possibly economically and socially, it affects the other spouse, it affects children, if the children are a part of that, it affects the extended family and the social networks, I mean, we all know that one person's irresponsibility, whether you think it's right or not, it has a ripple effect and it begins to affect the people around them. See, most people, most cultures, and most centuries, they understand this. Most places understand that you're not the product of your individual choices. You're a product of your community. Now, I'm a very independent person. I was kind of raised that way. I don't like a statement like this. I want to believe it's my choices. I made a choice to do this. I made a choice to get educated. I made a choice for a career path. I made a choice on a spouse. I worked hard. I, 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 I. But the idea in the Bible is simply this. If you feel like that's you, maybe you feel a little bit like me today, it's only because you were born into a community that allowed you to make that choice that made it possible for you to enjoy that benefit. Or, see, in every culture and society in every community, there are permissible elements that allow you to even maybe do things that might damage you in this life, but the community makes it permissible. Or the community makes it, gives you opportunities by being a part of it, you have opportunities. So all of our individual choices are in the context of a community. So each of us have a micro-community, it's our family of origin. And our family of origin influences our individual decisions. And then we're, charged, uh, we're part of a larger community, like One Church TO, that can influence part of our decisions and our choices in life. And of course, if we're in Canada, that can influence, or wherever your cultural background is from, it influences you. We're products of our community. That's what the Bible would say. Now, let me give you another example, because that's just Joshua chapter 7. What about Daniel? Remember Daniel in the lion's den? In Daniel chapter 9, it's interesting. The whole chapter is him repenting. 
He's repenting. He's, he's uh, taking responsibility for things that are done that he never did. Over and over in the chapter, he says, we have been wicked. We have turned away. But he's referring to his ancestors. These are not things he's done. It's things that his group have done. Now, why is he repenting for other people? Why is he taking responsibility for something that he didn't actively do himself? Well, because he knows that the culture that he's a part of has not only uh, benefited him, it's produced sins in his past. And he's still a part of that culture. So this is true in b both for the good and the bad. Listen, you and I benefit for the good decisions people make around us. You know, I wrote my dad a little Father's Day card. Hopefully you've done something for your dad too. And I, I, I just, I took one side of the card and I just said, Dad, thank you. Thank you for loving my mom. Thank you for being faithful to her. Thank you for working so hard to support six kids and feed them. Thank you for introducing us to Jesus. You see, his good decisions, I reap the benefits of them. I've benefited from his good decisions. And you know, as being a part of a church like this, you're benefiting from a lot of good activities of the community here as you participate and do life with us. You're benefiting from the fact that our elders pray every day for you. You're benefiting from the love army and we're going out and we're doing good in this world. Well, you're benefiting, whether you're participating in or it or it, whether you're participating or not, you're benefiting from being a part of our community that way. But the inverse is also true. You know, we, we also are marked by our community. Now, some of you might say, well, okay, that's Old Testament. Joshua, we're talking Jonah, we're talking Daniel. What about New Testament? Glad you asked. Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul says that you and I, we are, we're, we, you and I are responsible and we are also condemned for what our first ancestors did. We're responsible for their decision. They made a decision that polluted the world with sin and eventually death. And now we also bear a responsibility in what they've done. There's a connection that happens there. This is how maybe the gospel sometimes gets misunderstood. The gospel, and I believe this, there's an individual element to it where you and I need to decide for ourselves. It's not enough that my parents are Christian or my culture was Christian or the people group I came from is Christian and so therefore I'm Christian. No, 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 no. Individually, each of us needs to bow a knee to the king and say, not my way, your way. I'm coming under your leadership, Jesus. Lead me. And that is, there's an individual aspect. And we're really good in Western culture of emphasizing the individual as, aspect. But we need to understand that the whole structure of the gospel is based on corporate responsibility, though. That's why God chose to work through a people like Israel. He, he uses community. The triune nature of God represents connection. He chooses to reveal himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's made us to be a part of community. That's all part of it. And this is true in 2021. This is not an ancient concept. This is a biblical concept. So we're going to pause because you're going to watch a little interview that I had with a man from a, a Cree, the Cree Nation here in Canada. And he talks about the painful experience of First Nations people, what he has personally gone through. And as, as I had that conversation with him, 
there's an element of me bearing some responsibility in this. Hopefully you'll see. Just lean in and listen to this interview, and we'll be back here in a moment to discuss it. Well, I'm delighted to welcome Pastor Reggie Neposh to our gatherings this weekend at One Church TO. Pastor Reggie comes from the Ojibugamu Cree Nation. Pastor Reggie's an excellent leader, a pastor, and he's been the chief of the Ojibugamu Cree Nation. He's married to Louise since 1984. They have three adult children and one precious grandchild. Welcome, Pastor Reggie, to One Church CO. Roger, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. So, Pastor Reggie, uh, let's start with just asking a simple question. What's your story? What's your journey been like? Well, I want to begin by saying that uh, my story began when we were living in a village called Dory Lake. Um, it was pretty much uh, a mining territory. All around our village, there was mining activity. And I remember when I was young, that was the last place we had to move away from. Mm. See, our people have moved away more than seven times in different locations. And I remember the, that year when we had to leave, uh, we were asked to move to Mistisney. The majority of our, of our people decided to move there, but my grandparents didn't. I was raised by my grandparents since birth. I'm the third of 13 children that my late mother had, eight boys and five girls. And uh, today there's uh, six of us, that six boys that are surviving and two girls. So that tells you uh, what has happened. But uh, our community was an answer to prayer because our elders believed that one day we would have our community. And Ojibugbo is... Uh, international recognized by the United Nations, and we were given an award for human habitat. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Pastor Reggie, I know uh, you're following in the news and, and have even lived this chapter in Canadian history, but I, I know that you attended a residential school, but maybe talk to us a little bit about why uh, there is lingering damage and, and pain around that, and uh, where First Nations are uh, in terms of the uh, residential school story? Well, when we first heard the story of 215 uh, graves that were found buried in the uh, Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia, it brought anger and open wounds because a lot of us, like myself, I'm an Indian residential school survivor. Mm -hmm. I remember when I had to leave at five years old, I could never understand why two of my older brothers would leave one day. And it never crossed my mind as a young boy that I too would leave. I remember when I left, uh, I cried. We went through the system of being asked to line up and then the following week, our hair is cut, and then we were given clothing to wear. Um, we were asked not to speak our language. You know, if we cried, uh, we would be punished. We would be slapped or uh, hit with a belt. It's, it's such a, uh, a sad history here in our land, in Canada. Yes. What, how old were you when you, were, you came back home? I was one of the lucky ones. I was able to come home Christmas time, which was December and Easter weekend. I was one of the lucky ones, but majority of the students there 
didn't go home. They stayed there for 10 months. And I would always share my story with my grandparents, telling them what was happening to me, the abuse, the emotional abuse. But I never shared the sexual part, uh, being raped and sexually molested, because it, I felt ashamed and I felt that they wouldn't believe me. But as I got older, that's when I began to tell my grandfather, I don't want to go. And it did happen when I was 14, one morning in January 1976. He opened my door in my room and he said, you're not going to school. And that was the happiest day of my life. Wow. Hard to respond to that, Reggie. Um, obviously, along the road, uh, Jesus entered your life and became a part of that transformation uh, how did you get introduced to Jesus, and when did that really grab hold of you and, and become a part of the healing journey that you've been on? Christianity came to us uh, when I was younger. Um, my late aunt, Sarah, was the only one that got saved. And as a little boy, I was really attached to what she was talking about. What always resonated with me was the, the, the hymns that they sang, uh, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Or in the sweet by and by. Th- mm-hmm. Those songs would resonate in me. And uh, when I went to Indian residential school, uh, whenever I heard those songs, I would cry because it touched me. But I didn't know what it was. Uh, I, I didn't understand at mm-hmm. that age. But when I was seven years old, I had a visitation from the Lord. And I saw somebody... Uh, standing before me all in light and he had his hands out stretched out to me and I, all I did was cry and it was a warm feeling it was loving it was caring and uh, you know I believe it was the Lord Jesus Christ visiting me I knew I had a call on my life uh, when I was 14. Wow and fast forward pastor you're, you're pastoring a church, you've been an evangelist, a youth pastor, you speak uh, in many First Nations and across Canada. Uh, what is your passion now for First Nations people? Well, my passion is to see my people healed, uh, the First Nations people and all those that have gone through the Indian residential school syndrome. It's something that the pain is there. Mm. But for many of us, like myself, uh, the scars are there. Yeah. And it took me a long time to be healed. Even, even when I became a Christian, I always at uh, times was angry until I, I went to see a counselor and uh, shared my story about the Indian residential school. So, you know, it's something that uh, I think a lot of people are facing and my passion is for them to find healing. Yeah. And their hope is only in Jesus Christ. So um, you're speaking to over 70 nationalities right now. And I already know our church. Uh, they already love you. <laughs> and they, they want to, I know our church wants to be a part of that healing process. And a big part of it is right now we're just listening. But what are some ways that maybe people listening today that, you know, how could they be praying for First Nations people? How can we support you? Prayer is good. I believe prayer is, is powerful. 
But I think action is more powerful. I, I think uh, a lot of Aboriginal people across Canada need that. I remember when I was young, going back to our village of Dory Lake, we had a, uh, a young couple that came and ministered to us as little boys. I was probably around 10 or 11 years old, and uh, they would preach the gospel to us, do Sunday school to us. But I'm grateful for people standing up with us. But uh, I think actions is what we need, not words. Words are cheap. Well said, Pastor Reggie. And this is for us a beginning of a journey of standing with you and standing with First Nations people in Canada. And I know the the first time I, I saw you pray in one of our national gatherings, I, I, I saw your heart and your spirit. I'm so excited to partner with you and support and stand with you, brother. And I do believe, like you do, that, that Jesus is a healing presence and a restorative presence in, in, in any community. Uh, and I'm so thankful for how you're leading in your community. Thank you, Pastor Reg. Thank you very much, John. Well, as Jerry mentioned at the top of our gathering, this is not something we just ventured in in the last week or two with recent media reports. We've been journeying for months, talking and listening to First Nations leaders. Over 150,000, they estimate, children were put into residential homes, taken from their families at age five. And it's a tragic history. And I, I think, you know, we'll find ourselves in this story in just a minute, but jo Jonah helps illuminate that because we all have a role in Jonah's story. But if Jonah reveals anything, it reveals this, that there is injustice in all of us. All of us are capable and have participated in unjust things. We all have. Every one of us has. And we are guilty individually and we are guilty corporately. I think, you know, depending on your wiring, it's easy for me to find my individual guilt. I know who I am, guys. I am so not perfect. And that's why I joke with us as a community often. All the perfect people left a long time ago is just you and I. Because I, want, I never want you to be looking at us or deacons or others and pastors and thinking, oh, they got it all together. Because no one does. We all have individual guilt. But we also bear corporate guilt in this. You can see it in the narrative in Jonah. The Ninevites are guilty of great injustices. And what's required of them is not talk. And I love how Pastor Reg said that. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. God is looking for action. And they repent. They repent. And they throw themselves on the mercy of God. See, justice demands that everyone will give an account. Judgment will come. But mercy is the gift that is offered through Jesus Christ. So mercy is extended to the Ninevites. Judgment doesn't come. Now what happens in the story is interesting. We'll all tie it together in a second. But Jonah, remember, he goes through and he preaches this message of judgment. 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And he leaves the city, kind of goes on the side of a mountain, grabs his popcorn, and he's ready for the show. When is this city going to get destroyed? But the Ninevites repent. They, they, they cry out to God. They repent. They change their ways. They change their trampling over human rights. And God spares them. And it says in, in, in chapter 4, it's strange. Jonah's angry. He gets angry. In fact, it's part of that famous world's, world's uh, worst complaint. He says this. Didn't I say, he's talking to God, didn't I say before I left home 
that you would do this, Lord? I knew you would, Jesus. I knew, God, you would forgive them. I knew you would. And he's angered by it. I mean, what kind of prophet is he? I mean, as a pastor, if, if listen, I know that when I preach and teach, not everyone's going to agree with everything. But that's a dynamic of community, and we're in attention, and we're, in, we're learning together, and we're growing, and we're moving towards stuff. But, you know, if everyone moved a step closer to God because of a sermon I preached, I'd be pumped. He's not. He should have, as a prophet, when the city turned to God, he should have walked right back into that city and taught them and encouraged them in the faith. But instead, he stays on the side of the mountain waiting for God to change his mind and maybe destroy it. See, he should have, but why, why couldn't he? Because the mercy towards the Ninevites and the Assyrians threatened Israel's interests. It's interesting Earlier in this book, when he's on the boat in the big storm, and the sailors ask, who are you? He says, I'm a Hebrew and a follower of God. His national identity is put over his God-shaped identity. If you're a follower of Jesus, never get these confused. You are a follower of Jesus that may happen to be a Canadian or an, uh, happen to be American or happen to be uh, Indian or Sri Lankan or, or Chinese or whatever our background is or Congolese, whatever our background is. But we're first. We are people of the kingdom of God. We have a higher authority in our life and that marks us. That should always mark us. The things that were done in those residential schools, so often administrated and operated by, by church, that's so far from who Christ is. Those are, that's an activity that's not under Christ. It's counter Christ's way. So our identity is anchored to that. But Jonah, and I don't have time, and we did on Wednesday night, get into his nationalistic tendencies. He, he worshiped the country he was from. And it took, God was there for his people, not for these people. And God's mercy to the Assyrians or the Ninevites threatened his interest in, to Israel. And here's a story for each of us. If we're going to be people of justice, if we're going to be people of shalom, which scripture calls us to be people of peace, if we're going to be allies to the marginalized, the oppressed, and the exploited, we need to remember it's going to cost us some of our interests. Some of our interests are going to have to be, see, there's an exchange happening. You can't elevate someone without giving up something. If the, the teeter, uh, totter of justice or, or resources or whatever it is in this life are tipped against a people or a person or anything, well, something needs to be taken to be able to balance it. So there's this act, act of surrender here. See, every one of us benefits off the loss of another. We all do. That's how business works. That's how the stock market works. We all benefit economically, socially, and even racially off on the loss of others. And this is encapsulated in the story in Jonah chapter four and uh, one to four it, about the Ninevites. They are doing great injustices. And their injustices are not just to other nations. They're doing it right in their own home. There's evil operating in the systems of their culture. Now, over time, and you'll hear this often, and it may bother you, but let me explain a little bit. When we talk about systemic racism, systemic poverty, systematic things, it's acknowledging that there are systems 
Every body has systems. I have a cardiovascular system, a skeletal system, a nervous system. It's how I operate. It's how you get things done. Every society has systems. We have economic systems. We have social systems. All of those systems are how you get things done. And sometimes systems, when they're out of step or they're influenced by sin, of which we all have, we're all broken, imperfect people, these systems either work for your benefit or they crush you. And we all participate in these systems. There's a system that allowed residential schools to appear like a good idea. There's a system that protects those that are guilty and oppresses those that are innocent. There's a system that allows the marginalized, the oppressed, and the exploited to be further downtrodden. But here's where I am and probably you, because I know this church, filled with amazing people. I love you guys so much. And there's so much to love about you. And as individuals, we can say, listen, that's not me, Jonathan. I don't go around oppressing people, marginalizing people, exploiting people. That's not how I live my life, and I know that. But here's the thing. We're a part of systems that do do that. See, we have decisions to make. If you're ever going to change a system, it's changed through decisions. How you purchase, what you purchase, what you do, what you value, what you voice, what you elevate, what you lower. All of these things help us as individuals influence a corporate system. Here's, Here's what God would have us know. God loves all people. All people. He loves the widow, the orphan, and the oppressed, and he will defend them. And sometimes we wonder where God is when we see the injustices in this world. I I know, guys, and I'll show you in a minute why sometimes it looks like God is delaying justice or whatever. Listen, judgment will come and justice will be served someday. I love how God shows up in the middle of it. Did you capture that in Pastor Reg's story? Seven-year-old boy in a residential home. I can't imagine being ripped out from your parents, haircut, told you can't speak the language. You cry, which would be natural for a young kid at that age, and then you get beaten with a... I, I, I just can't imagine. At seven years old, Jesus shows up to him. Wow. He hears our cries. He knows us by name. I know that Jesus will defend them. Here's the other part of grace that's harder for us sometimes to hold on to. God loves all people, even the violent, the abusive, and the oppressive. He loves them all. So what is God doing about the injustices in this world? The Apostle Peter helps us understand it when he says this. God is restraining himself. He's holding back himself on account of, can you say it? You. God's holding back judgment right now for your, on your account and my account. Why? Because injustice in, is in all of us. If God's judgment was to fall today, we're all gone. Every one of us has contributed injustices in this world. Uh, granted, some to greater degrees than others. Holding back the end because he doesn't want anyone lost. He's giving everyone, everyone, even your enemies, space and time to change. When you see the word repent in the Bible, which is kind of an older term, we don't use it very often in present culture, really what it means is change. 
It means change. I was going this direction and I changed direction. I was behaving this way and I changed my behavior. Change happens. So here's how we're going to end our gathering. In just a minute, Hannah's going to lead us in a great song where we're going to see the redemptive work of Jesus that we have benefited from. And I hope if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope you just see, you know, we talked about last week, this privilege of knowing Jesus, privilege of receiving his grace and forgiveness. Man, the transformative power of Jesus. Man, when Jesus gets a hold of you, he never leaves you the same. You come to Jesus looking for this, and he always gives you way more than you came looking for. You come looking for a little change here, and he's not out for that little tweak in your life. He's going to transform you from the inside out. Jesus' work is amazing. Jesus' work is amazing. And so we're going to come to him. She's going to sing about that. And then Jerry's going to come at the end. And we have a challenge for you this week. Pastor Reg's words have been just turning in my head all week. Talk is cheap. We're going to give you an opportunity to take some actions to help some First Nations people. And this is the beginning of us really leaning in and that story in Canada and being a part of building a better future. And we're listening and we're studying and we're just learning right now. But you're gonna have an opportunity as First Nations leaders that said this would be helpful. We, we wanna come alongside them in this season. So you're gonna have an opportunity at the end of our gathering. But before we do there, I wanna pray with you. It's interesting, theologians would say this. If you wanted to, and he, they believe that Jesus was thinking of Jonah when he told the story of the prodigal son. You could draw a dotted line from Jonah and Jesus' story about the prodigal son. First couple chapters of Jonah, Jonah's the younger brother. Running from the father, running from the father's will, only interested in his own interests, and fleeing the father. I'm going to be at freedom. I'm not going to do as he says. I'm not going to be under his. Instead, I want to take care of me. There's a selfishness to that role. And the last part of Jonah, Jonah is the older brother, chastising the father. You know, outside the party, outside the city, not part of that repentance. Instead, chastising the father for giving grace to the younger brother. Wherever you're at, because we're sitting somewhere in there or in between, if today you're more like the younger brother, you need to check yourself. If, if really, you know, you don't see, not only do you not see responsibility, you're more interested in yourself you're more interested in your plight, in your journey and stuff. Just, just check yourself. Check yourself so that maybe you can allow the Father's heart to be developed in you for, 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 for what he wishes in this life. If you're running from him, listen, the road of righteousness leads to life. He, he has a better way for you, a better living way for you that will produce good fruit in your life so you'll reap a better harvest. But if you're like the older brother... And you might be like this. I don't like this. I don't like the idea of corporate responsibility. How am I responsible for what happened in First Nations people? I wasn't even in this country then. Or, or like, uh, my family has no direct connection to it. Um, don't be the older brother. Recognize that we all have a role in what our country is becoming and who we are. And I pray with each passing day, it looks more like Jesus. But I know one of the ways we do it is by accepting responsibility and building a better tomorrow. Maybe uncross your arms, hold your hands out in front of you and say, Jesus, help me find my place and space in this story. Let's pray. Father,
Thank you for the work of your son, Jesus. Just like with Pastor Reg, you've showed up in our life and it may not look like his, but you know that little boy in that residential school needed to see something really special in that moment. And God, every one of us who knows you, we have seen something very special. A risen Savior who has graced us and forgiven us because we admit today, God, injustice and sin, brokenness, it's in us, God. So Father, we ask you to forgive us today. Individually, and if this is you, go ahead and just The Bible says if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So just individually, God, we own our sin and we ask you to forgive us. Fill us with your spirit and grace us in this moment. And this might be harder for some of us. And God, just like Daniel, we ask for your forgiveness corporately as a nation. We have sinned. We have walked all over image bearers. God, we recognize today that everyone is made in the image of God, even our enemies, even those that look different than us, even those that we struggle to to like in this life, they are made in your image. And God, we don't want to be like Jonah. We don't want to be like the Ninevites. With each passing day, God, We want to look like your son, Jesus. Help develop in us a heart after you. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing, both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.